Chapter 6. The Environment and the Activists. A View of a Mine. But what are you going to Crivy Rick for? When the third person in the city, in the space of four days, asks why I want to go to Crivy Rick, I begin to cotton on that my destination is no Eastern European Saint-Tropez. The reason for the scepticism dawns on me just after I alight from the train on arrival. In the warm June night, I am met by a thick scent, mildly sickening, vaguely chemical. Above me in the darkness hovers a cloud, a layer of particles from Krivirich's metal industry. Everyone who lives here has to get used to constantly brushing away the ruddy dust that falls gently upon the surroundings. The room I've rented during my visit is, unsurprisingly, on Metallurgy Street. When the taxi has found the address that leads into a courtyard in some alien darkness behind some tall, shabby blocks of flats, my temporary German fellow passenger gasps in a pang of discomfiture. A gloomy, claustrophobic 1960s block overlooks a copse of tall trees. A few naked light bulbs shed a faint glow upon a crackled grey-brown facade, some of whose panelling has fallen off. The doors are made of solid iron, and some balconies serve as a loading space for tyres and plastic sacks. A figure standing by the corner of the building scurries inside through a door that squeals and slams shut. The backyard on Metallurgy Street offers me a harsh welcome. Nothing's actually wrong, but everything feels wrong. After having navigated my way to the right flat, the door is opened by a tall man who gravely and taciturnly hands me the keys. I give a little bow, quietly wish him a good evening, and thank him. Dobro vice, spasiba. In Krivirich, one speaks Russian, but plainly and without undue volubility. A cursory nod is enough. Krivirich's answer to the Adams family's lurch removes himself without a word. The flat itself offers a strange contrast to its exterior. Everything is sparkling clean. There are spotlights in the ceiling. The decor is minimalist grey with white and brown furnishings. There's a simple but contemporary kitchenette, and on the sofa is a cushion with a printed photograph of Marilyn Monroe bearing the legend, Everyone is a star and deserves to be treated like one. I find myself in a flat renovated to a source of income in accordance with modern commercial logic, at the same time as the brutal condition of the block itself tells another history, of a society in which people are input items in a decaying industrial project. In southeastern Ukraine's coal and iron belt, life for nigh in the past 150 years has revolved around what is dug up out of the ground coal and ore. Krivirich is the centre of a region boasting one of the world's largest deposits of banded iron ore and a vast processing industry. The city was founded by the Cossacks in the 1600s, and its name, despite its half-dozen or so variations, means Bent Horn, probably in reference to some bends of the Ingulits and Saxican rivers, which meander around the area. The city's current character took shape in the 1880s, after French and British investors got wind of the raw material deposits. 
Exploitation took off and mine after mine opened up in the area, followed by the residential and administrative buildings that flocked around them. Kribirich is by far the strangest city I've ever visited, not least because it is Europe's longest, having emerged along a north-east-south-west vein of ore as a string of communities that eventually merged into a city stretching 80 kilometres, with factories, homes and shops. It is an elongated colonisation of functions with no clear centre, a transport route of industries, residential blocks and shopping centres, which, despite the occasional onion-domed church, more calls to mind the pioneering lands of the United States. But the steel industry has gradually shrunk. Krivirich has around 650,000 inhabitants and its own underground railway, but it was the much larger city of Dnipro that was made into the regional capital of Dnipropetrovsk Oblast, which cemented the role of industrial city Krivirich as being on the margin, a potent but harsh place made for making. Krivirich was not included in the separatists' areas when the internal struggles flared up in 2014 and Russia advanced its pawns into Ukraine. Some have described it as a consequence of random events. Others point out that the Europhile oligarch Ihor Kolomoisky made sure to keep the city under government control. This industrial city, long seen as unswervingly loyal to Viktor Yanukovych's despised party of the regions, is still dominated by the same senior ranks, this time in the figure of the opposition bloc's local chieftain, Yuri Vilkul, close ally of steel magnate Rinat Akhmetov, Ukraine's most powerful and wealthiest oligarch. The room I've hired is a block away from the city centre a circumstance I would not have noticed if someone hadn't told me. The surroundings all have the atmosphere of a sparse housing estate with a lengthy suite of run-down modernist dwellings. My Cicero points out the solid-looking block where the country's President Zelensky grew up and the nearby school he attended. Krivirich's Iron Belt differs from the Donbass industrial region where coal dominates. The industrial culture of its two major urban centres, Luhansk and Donetsk, is also harsher, formed as it is by the extraction of a raw material that lies close to the surface. Krivirich's ore and metal industry, which extracts a share of the deposits via deep subterranean shafts and tunnels, has been followed by a more advanced kind of engineering. Since the 19th century, trained specialists have been recruited from afar, which has also enhanced local engineering skills. The principal nerve of the steel city is PJSC, ArcelorMittal, Ukraine's and one of Europe's largest iron and steel plants, with a capacity for some 8 million tonnes of cast iron a year. The combine was formerly Krivorishstal and was one of the USSR's industrial flagships. The privatisation programme that was pushed through from 2004 was a controversial story and was followed, true to form, by allegations of corruption and lawsuits. It ended with the emergence of regional finance clans surrounding Rinat Akhmetov and Viktor Pinchuk as the dominant oligarchs in Ukraine. The sell-off raised billions in proceeds to the state coffers, was seen as a success and set the trend for the privatisations that through all manner of bartering transferred power to the country's finance clans. 
Over the years, however, the steel industry has been slimmed down in Krivirich. Wages here are still often more than double the Ukrainian average. Those working in the pits, which reach hundreds of metres underground, are paid the best and breed a rugged, macho identity. The ore miners of Ukraine, truer ironmen, would be harder to find. Despite the extensive environmental initiatives of recent years, the metal industry has an enormous impact on the environment with its emissions of nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide, ammonia, dust, formaldehyde, carbon monoxide and hydrogen sulfide. The fact that the industries are fueled by coal adds more poison to this cocktail. An uneven struggle is going on between the city dwellers and the regional power holders explains environmental activist Anna Ambrozova disconcertedly when we meet at Heroes Park in central Krivirich. She and her husband Dima have promised to show me some local open-cast mines. The emissions affect the health of everyone living here, she tells me. The dust particles blow everywhere and get into the lungs and blood. Studies of sand from children's playgrounds show that the dioxin levels are many times higher than normal. In Krivi Rick, we had 150 babies born with cancer in 2017 and many cases of tuberculosis. Anna and Dima Ambrosov live with their children in a small flat in the city. Dima is an engineer and periodically works abroad in former Caucasian Soviet republics and in India. Anna works at the university and is active in a movement called Stop Poisoning Krivi Rich. According to her, activism has increased steadily over the years and has actually resulted in certain improvements. But pollution is still an urgent problem. In 2006, ArcelorMittal received a load of $200 million from the EBRD to modernise production and improve efficiency. Five years later, carbon dioxide levels were down by 20% although this was more a result of a drop in production levels occasioned by the financial crisis than anything. You can smell the air yourself, but still they let the emissions carry on, despite the fact that other countries, like the Czech Republic, have similar industries with working purification systems. Her explanation for the lack of proper remedial measures is that big industry controls the political power holders through donations and bribes. And with the people's blessing, I'm afraid to say. They need the work and rely on these companies for their jobs. Since the communist era, we've had a tradition of ruthless resource exploitation without concern for people or environment. And during democratization, this has been replaced by equally harsh capitalist exploitation. The small activist groups are the only pockets of resistance. Around four-fifths of Ukraine's iron ore is extracted from Krivirich's five mines, its industrial zones taking up a quarter of the city's 410 square kilometres. The mammoth PJSC Krivorich Stahl accounts for 80% of the city's emissions. When the Czech environmental organisation Arnika conducted an environmental audit of southeastern Ukraine's industrial areas, however, it found that the environmental damage was greater in the towns of Dnipro and Mariupol, not least due to the extensive spread of mercury and DDT. Dima drives to an open-cast mine south of the city. We park 
and walk up the slope along expansive flower-stippled meadows in a balmy but refreshing breeze to the rim of the pit that faces the vast 400-metre-deep mine, grey-black with faint ruddy streaks. In the distance, we can see trucks on the opposite slope, struggling upwards loaded with ore. In the other direction, beyond the meadow, the city's industries loom on the horizon, and above them broods the grey fog of particles. We sit on the rim of the pit and take out our food. A picnic with a view of a mine. As we tuck in, I wonder whether Dima and Anna, who are not dependent on the mine, have ever thought of moving away. I don't need to ask the question before Dima answers. Just like many other people, I can move away from here and live in another country, but why would we? We have our roots here. We're educated. We should be able to live normal lives. And moving is no solution to the city's population. I listen to Dima and feel a lump in my throat. Not because I'm moved by his story, but because the dust in the air has lodged in my airways. I cough and nod. But time does not stand still in the city of steel. The patriarchal, self-satisfied leaders of bygone days have been replaced by a more modern generation of younger showmen who, rather than governed by decree from centrally appointed committees, have learned how to mobilise the people while constantly reminding them of the hand that feeds them. The city is still proud of its steel and carries out different urban and corporate modernisation projects. The collapse of communism flung Ukraine into an acute economic crisis in the 90s, after which President Leonid Kuchma prepared the stage for the oligarchs. In the Dnipropetrovsk region, Agmiotov and Pinchuk got to share the spoils, the latter also marrying into the Kuchma family. While the nation's assets were parceled out by Kuchma, corruption was also institutionalised. Despite this, around the turn of the millennium, the prevailing oligarchy gave the economy a boost. Today, Ukraine is the world's sixth largest producer of ore, even if the importance, and thus environmental footprint, of the steel industry has gradually shrunk. During Soviet times, when two-thirds of all the Union's iron was produced here, Krivirich was coated in smog and dust. Nowadays, the pollution is more limited and the rivers, once described as a red sludge, are much cleaner. And even if the rundown colossi, the sparse settlements and the brutal industrial milieu reflect enduring traditions, it is obvious that independence, privatisation, democratisation and a demilitarised existence have transformed Krivirich into a new country. Eastern Ukraine's identity has long careened between Russian nostalgia and European dreams. With the Maidan revolt of 2014, the country was given a resolute shove towards more Western values. Since 2014, a new spirit has arisen in Griviriich. Euromaidan coincided with the realisation that the environment was something we can and have to do something about says Svetlana Sova, 44-year-old legal practitioner, politician and the city's mayoral candidate. She represents the Sila Lude, Power of People Party, which became the hub of a kind of grassroots movement in Krivirich.
17 not-for-profit organizations once divided found a joint platform in the small social liberal party for issues concerning the environment, human rights and equality. At first, around 2015-16, corruption was the movement's main concern, but this issue soon dragged the environment along with it. Everyone can see the environmental impact of our industries and that the reason why the authorities don't put a stop to it is that they want to brush it under the carpet. Transparency and ecological awareness are two sides of the same coin. Today, there's a sense of national responsibility, and here, the environmental question is paramount, explains Svetlana. Air quality is the biggest problem, with all the allergies, asthma and cancer that it causes. I can tell that I instantly feel better when I'm in Kiev. Of the 64 delegates in the Municipal Assembly, Sila Lude had four in 2015, giving them a platform for the local exercise of power. Before this, the dominant party in the city had been the party of the regions, with its local bigwig Yuri Vilkul. Today, not only have the party leader and President Yanukovych been ousted, the party itself has disappeared from the scene of power. Vilkul now represents the oppositional bloc. The new media landscape has evened out power relations to some degree. When Vilkul ironically launched himself as a local superhero by the name of Will Cool, the oppositional parties responded with a caustic meme on Will Cold, a jibe at the contractual conflict with a gas supplier that left 2,000 residential buildings, 75 schools and many preschools without municipal heating in the winter of 2018. According to Svetlana Sova, Sila Lude is different in that its political activities rest upon basic values. It's hard to talk about the value of ideology in Ukraine. People don't understand it or associate it with communism. If you want something other than person-centred campaigns, you must talk about common values and use those as your starting point instead. Sila Lude's offices, containing a hundred or so party members, has provided a platform for activism on a wide range of issues. Amongst other things, the activists pursue lawsuits against the monopolistic conduct of a local gas plant, run recycling campaigns in different urban districts, and two brothers have sought out sponsors for a youth centre. Ukraine's political parties generally do not educate people in democratic processes, but one of them that has now begun to do so obtains grants from foreign party-affiliated democracy aid organisations. Beata Appelt, a Ukraine-based representative of the Friedrich Naumann Foundation, which promotes the development of democratic parties in Ukraine, tells me of the lack of maturity she sees in Ukraine's party system. The parties are in effect fan clubs for various celebrities who often start them for a particular election and with covert financing. The parties become instruments through which oligarchs exert influence. The problem with such party projects is that they can change tack at a whim. In the end, it also means that the interests of the electorate are not reflected in the system. It's generally difficult to form parties in Ukraine around ideas of how society is to operate. I meet Beate Appelt in Krivi Rich, 
where she organizes a youth camp for Sila Lude's young political activists. Some 40 young people from around Ukraine gather at the camp and organize a workshop at a campsite outside the city. For three days, they practice how to run campaigns, what issues are viable, and how to base their political activism on values. Plastic bags are suffocating our land. Fight obesity in Ukraine. And, if not you, who? Are some of the suggested slogans that the group throw up at the campsite workshop. It's easier to pick up a girl in town than it is to get people to discuss politics, camp participant Volodymyr informs me. People are apathetic. They think everything to do with politics is dirty. It's weird. In fact, everything is possible here in Ukraine because we have so much that has to be done from scratch and much to learn. But it's not easy, as people have no faith in the ability of politics to change things for the better. They choose what's the most convenient. Populists with power, he says. Even if Ukraine has its populism, it differs from the one that thrives in the West with its orchestrated roaring at the liberal world order. The Ukrainian landscape is different. Here there is no hardened liberal elite or crumbling social democratic popular movement power. Society is dominated by magnates' business projects and transient political projects that operate on the media-controlled democracy's terms. The local activists in Sila Lude, at least locally, are proof that a different kind of roar is possible. A coordinated people's roar that unifies issues of corruption, human rights and the environment. The government has also backed the pressure being exerted on the city's industries. During his visit to the city in 2019, President Zelensky criticised ArcelorMittal's handling of environmental problems and said that the company should pay compensation to the people made sick by the pollutants it emits. He also proposed that the country's environment ministry move to Krivirich until the situation there and in Dnipro significantly improved. A month or so later, I'm having lunch in Kiev with Vasil Sehin a young legal practitioner who is working through the EU-backed ULEAD on a project designed to enhance and formalise environmental protection in Ukraine. He describes his organisation as a bridge between activists and parliament. The environment is terribly neglected in Ukraine. We have to find new ways to handle the problems. At the end of the day, it's about having strong institutions in charge of environmental issues. To have the power to really solve problems, the institutions need to be as independent as possible and able to carry out inspections and impose sanctions, even on the country's largest companies. Vasil Sehin and I are sitting in what is the antithesis of Krivirich, a futuristic restaurant during Maidan called The Last Barricade. Constructed almost like a subterranean labyrinth, it is hyper-urban with a dystopian atmosphere straight out of Blade Runner. Krivi Rich has a special history with a population that's dependent on iron mining. What's more, ArcelorMittal is the world's largest steel group and one of Ukraine's biggest taxpayers. So it's hard for people to fight for their ecological rights. In the winter of 2020, 
ArcelorMittal announced that it plans to invest $700 million over three years on the greening of its industries. But just how much this is a matter of regular investments or direct environmental initiatives is hard to say. China has also recently signed major contracts in Krivirich. I see it as us having to build up the institution step by step, introducing standards for environmental targets and limit values, establishing routine inspection procedures and the power to demand improvements within set time limits, says Vasil. But the road there is far from straight. After the 2019 general election, the government merged the Departments of the Environment and Energy, which in effect, says Vasil, swung the priority over to energy. And the following spring, the Zelensky regime ejected its prime minister, appointing in his place Denise Schmehal, former head of DTEC Bushtenskaya, a coal-fueled power station outside the city of Bushtin, and one of the absolute worst polluters of the Ivano-Frankivsk region. A few days' sojourn in Krivirich can prove a depressing experience for a Westerner. It is hard to wean yourself off the feeling that you are wandering through a dystopia, a place ravaged by a low-intensity environmental disaster. The surroundings evoke an eschatological scene with the end not coming under the onrushing hooves of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but as a more mundane, persistent rash compounded by asthma, sickness, and a dust that makes the eyes water among the rusting buildings. And in the meantime, life carries on with its causes for rejoice and hope. And as an outside observer, it is easy to become as much one-eyed as teary-eyed. On a bus ride through the city, I realise that I've automatically ascribed the city a hopelessness that it might not actually deserve. I ask a young female activist what she thinks about her hometown. Krivirich is nice. We have a lot of green areas, trees and parks, and it has pretty much all you need, like schools, sports and shops. I'm happy here. Of course. The environmental disaster that is Krivirich, if indeed that is fair judgment to pass on the place, is also full of life, youthful hope and creativity. And above all, this post-Soviet steel city has become part of the modern global village with its values, trans-digital identities and drift towards a new destination that often seems to exist at some indefinite place in the West. Krivirich is, like many other of the country's cities, a dirty yet blank slate where people grasp at the promises of modernity with one hand while clinging on to their historical identity with the other. For a few days in the summer of 2019, the city arranges a local public Eurofest with food and music in praise of Europe and where visitors take selfies with, of all improbable features, someone dressed as a moomin and the global power shifts follow their own logic. Mayor Vilkul features in the media at the same time as a delegation from China's metallurgical corporation, MCC, on the hunt for new business opportunities. July 2019 also saw the city's first equality march, 
admittedly a very modest appendage to Kiev's rainbow parade, with only a dozen or so people engaged in a peaceful march in support of the LGBTQ movement along a short stretch of Edward Fuchs Street. But in a country where a dim view is taken of homosexuality, it was still an important indication of shifting values. The ingrained culture of heavy drinking has also waned amongst the young. And haven't the successes of local son Volodymyr Zelensky been a boost to Krivyri's self-esteem? On my last day in the city, I asked the young activist, Alexander Pilipenko, what the future holds for the city with Zelensky at the helm. He gives a cautious smile and shrugs. I don't think it means that much. Zelensky's from the world of TV. It's politics as show business. In reality, there's no script, and all change happens much more slowly, especially here in Krivirich.